Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And as they go, I want you to think about if you've seen, we've all seen these emails. We've received them now in the last four, five, six years. Uh, our uh, ability to weed out spam email has improved. So maybe you haven't read in a while about a tremendous opportunity for my special American friend. And they normally come from Nigeria. Why Nigeria? And it's normally a relative of some deposed ruler or the daughter of a queen who has run into political difficulty. They have millions of dollars stashed away in a secret bank account. But they don't have access to the money. And uh, due to you know, government bureaucracy or some type of other injustice and a wonderful opportunity for you, my friend, you can help us get access to the money. I would just need to pay this fee and then this bribe and then this fine and then you know, one fee after another. And this is an opportunity for uh, one billion burr from the Ethiopian queen. And uh, you wonder, like, does, does anybody ever actually fall for this and why does it always come from Nigeria and there's actually reasons there's answers to both of those questions why Nigeria do people fall for this amazingly yes and why Nigeria in 19 in the 1980s early 1980s there was a political revolution uh, some great turmoil in uh, Nigeria the economy was tanking and what should we call them uh, entrepreneurial enterprising government officials as they were fleeing, uh, stole a whole bunch of official uh, Nigerian uh, national letterhead, and then they started sending distress letters to um, British investors, uh, talking about different situations where they just need a certain amount of capital to get them over the hump, and they picked people who had already invested in the country, and uh, I guess just assumed the sunk cost fallacy would start working and amazingly they got a lot of money and thought hmm this is an interesting way to make a living and so it started and there's this fascinating story you know who knew about the dark side the criminal email scamming underbelly from Nigerian internet cafe so there's actual this 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 crime boss structure so you kind of have the big bosses and then there are uh, hundreds of people working for them who work out of internet cafes in Nigeria and they send out the goal the metrics are the goal is for every 500 emails you send out, there's, there's generally seven uh, responses uh, that you'll get. And uh, my, the latest figures I have, so I don't know if this is up to date. So if Joe Barrett was here, I don't know if Joe's here, he works for uh, security and loss and used to work for the federal government. Maybe he could tell us has been cracked down. But in 2013, it was estimated that $12.7 billion went to Nigerian email marketeers. And that was up. So in 2010, it was 9 billion. Uh, 2012, it went up to 10 billion. Then 13, uh, almost $13 billion. And so the way that works, they send out the massive emails. And then there's actually, so the whole goal is to get people to, to respond. A um, couple things I found fascinating. Uh, there's lots of operatives actually here in America. So once they get words, once somebody responds, that's like the first kind of 
to hook in, and then there will be people who will uh, befriend you at Starbucks and then start telling a story and kind of get you drawn in. It's interesting. They don't actually want your bank account number. They, if you get the bank account number, they sell that. What they really want is wire transfers from Western Union. And guess where, where would you guess are the top three countries for uh, most... I don't know how do we word it. Most easily deceived. But where do they get the most amount of revenue from? Who would you guess is number one? U.S. of A, baby. <laughs> We're the most gullible. And then number two is Great Britain. And then number three is India. But this is fascinating. Where would you guess uh, live the most operatives who actually work for the Nigerian email scammers? The United States of America. So not only are we the most gullible, we're the most sinister. We're the most devious. We're actually the ones perpetuating the scam on ourselves. And you think, who would fall for such a thing? A lot of people. One of the strategies that I thought was interesting that lets me know I could be in trouble is, uh, have you ever, I've never noticed, maybe you've noticed if you've ever read one of the emails, there's, uh, it, it's just a grammatical nightmare. So there's multiple uh, errors of grammar and all types of things. And that's intentional. Do you know why it's intentional? Because the idea is if you aren't discerning enough to pick out the grammatical errors, you're probably gullible enough to fall for the scam. So they put that in intentionally. And uh, I think, well, who would be in danger of being duped by such a thing? And uh, you know, most of us kind of pride ourselves that uh, we would never fall for such a scam. But I wonder... I wonder if there's not some other spiritual scam that we might also be easily duped by. Maybe a more, spirit, a more sinister sham that we're in danger of falling for. We actually might be in more danger than we think. And so what we're looking at, we're doing a series. Our theme all year is joining Jesus and making all things new. And the theme verse is from Revelation 21 where he says, um, Jesus is on his throne. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. And then in Revelation, it's an invitation to join him. He's making people new, communities new. He's making the world new. And as we're looking at Revelation 2 and 3, um, let's see, uh, Luke, pull up, or Graham, who's back there, pull up the slide of just the map to the churches. So in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus sends seven letters to seven churches, and these are to be, in essence, messages to all of his churches of all time. Seven, it gives the fullness of his message, and they give, the, in essence, the three criteria that he's going to evaluate the churches to make sure they stay healthy and vibrant and strong. And the things are sound doctrine, renewal of the Holy Spirit, and faithful living. And the messages to churches one and seven are that they've lost their love and they've become lukewarm. Their hearts are cold and dry. And he says, you need to be renewed by the Spirit. You need to love me. Love me with all your heart. And then the messages to churches two and six, they're about to go through tremendous persecution. And he says, your life is about to get hard. Just hold on. Be faithful. Hold on. Faithful living. But then to the three churches in the middle, he uh, critiques them very strongly because they've bought into certain lies and they've given themselves to false doctrine. He says, sound doctrine. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the churches to Pergamum and Thyatira and focus on those two. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along with me. We'll start in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell 
where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. See, also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone that no one will know except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works. I know your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrifice to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works, and I will strike her children dead." And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to that teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Hold fast what you have until I come. To the one who conquers and keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." As the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here at the very center um, of the, the very center, the three churches in the middle, we're going to focus on the first two, Pergamum and Thyatira. So just a little background. Actually, we know less about these churches and towns than any other towns on the list. It's interesting because uh, in Thyatira was the, the least well-known, and it was the smallest of all of those cities, and yet Jesus gives them the longest letter. Uh, it was Lydia's hometown. So the story of Lydia, she was uh, she was um, a very successful, prosperous businesswoman who sold purple uh, goods, fashion. Uh, that's kind of upper class fashion to the emperor and the elite in this world. And then she hears the gospel in Philippi from Paul, and it says the Lord opened up her heart. And so Thyatira was her hometown, so possibly uh, she was instrumental in getting the church uh, going there. But let's kind of look. The way I want to look at these three um, or these three is let's think about what Jesus says, both the good, the bad, and the ugly. So we'll kind of walk through this and look at each piece. First, the good. Notice what he says in verse 13. <coughs> in verse 13, I know where you dwell to the church in Pergamum, where Satan's throne is. Now, it's interesting because that was just a little small town, and the folks from Pergamum might have thought, Wait a second, where Satan's there? Like, we're not bad. Like, you want to see a bad town, go to Ephesus. That was like the Las Vegas of the day. Or you want to see a, a, a town, go to Laodicea. That's like the New York City of their world. And then he says, this is where Satan's throne dwells. 
It says, yet you hold fast my name. I know you're in a difficult situation and you're enduring. You have not denied my faith. You stayed strong. You've held on. Even in the days of Antipas was one of the first martyrs who was faithfully killed where Satan dwells. So even in the people in their church are being persecuted to the point of death and they're holding on. I think that's a tremendous thing. And then look at Thyatira. This is uh, haunting to me. Because notice what it says to the church in Thyatira, verse 19, I know your works. And then listen to the things he rattles off. Your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. And I know that your latter works exceed the first. So this is a remarkably loving church. They're vibrant. They're the kind of church where you would walk in and instantly feel uh, attracted to and welcomed and everybody, you would feel like you belong and you would find your place where you could get plugged in. They're loving. They're serving the community. They're doing tremendous things out in the world. We actually just spent the weekend talking about our membership class, which is really more like culture class. What's the kind of culture we are trying to create here? And you could actually take verse 19. That's the culture. We want to be a church that's both loving and serving and generous and welcoming in all of these things. But then notice what Jesus says. There's a strong but that's coming. So you have the church, they're, they're, they're doing some good things, but it's not enough. See, for this church in Thyatira, they were loving, loving, but their love was undiscerning and it was blindly affirming. And Jesus said, that's not enough. And then what's fascinating is you look, it's not ever all or nothing. They have, you know, everything uh, is good and bad. They have good things, but then there's some bad. Notice the bad things that he highlights for both of them. First in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak, Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And you have some there who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Pergamum, they have two, teaching of Balaam, teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then notice for Thyatira is the false teaching. It says you have some in verse 20 who tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. And then look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, you haven't learned what some call the deep things of Satan. So they've, they've sold out to false doctrine. And the way he categorized it, there's three kind of perennial temptations that cause us to sell out the things we believe. He says the teaching of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and the teaching of Jezebel. And so what these are, these kind of provide like paradigms or patterns or things that are always going to tempt God's people to sell out uh, the gospel. So the first one is teaching of Balaam. What, what, is, what does that represent? So that's going back to a story in the Old Testament from Numbers uh, 25. So the situation is the people uh, have just been redeemed out of slavery, come out of Egypt, uh, disobedience in the wilderness. Now they're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness waiting to come into the promised land. One generation has to pass before the new generation can come in. And then in Numbers chapter 20, the kind of the, the old guard are starting to die off. And so now it's time 
time for the, the next generation to take the land. So Aaron dies and then Miriam dies. And then in verse 21, they start to enter into the land. And in chapter 21 in Numbers, you have a succession of three victories. So they go into, um, they defeat Og, they go in to defeat the Amorites, and they're starting to move in. And they're just on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And this land is Moab. And Balak, who is mentioned here, he's the king of Moab. So he uh, is panicking because they're about to come into his land. And he hires Balaam. And then in Numbers 22, 23, 24, and 25, there's, it's, it's really a comical scene of Balaam as a prophet who's hired to uh, curse the Israelites. But he can't because God won't let him. And so every time he tries to curse them, uh, comical things happen and he can't actually do it. The effort utterly fails. And then Balak gets really upset because he's like, I'm paying you this money to curse my enemies and you're actually blessing them. Everything is turning, going the wrong way. So Balaam, uh, he can't curse the Israelites. So the strategy then is to corrupt them. So he says, all right, if we can't curse you, we're going to corrupt you. So what they do is they infiltrate the people of God. Uh, and then there's in chapter, uh, let me find my reference here. Chapter, oh, I just have the verse. So in verse 2 of a chapter somewhere around <laughs> chapter 25. <laughs> They he has them sacrificed to false gods. Verse 6 and 7, they then have this sacrificial feast and then commit sexual immorality uh, with the Moabites. And then plague breaks out in the story of Phineas who comes in and, uh, and purges the evil in chapter 31. So. And uh, Balaam becomes a popular symbol of a false prophet who is primarily motivated by physical profit. So he's a prophet for sale. He will, um, he will tell you, he will speak for the Lord to tell you what you're willing to get and to buy. He's driven by the motive of profit. So even Peter in First and Second Peter talks about how there's Balaams who come in among us and they're trying, they're driven by their insatiable desire for greed. And so Balaam became like this symbol of the ways that we're willing to compromise the gospel for profit. For financial gain. And then the second teaching is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And this is kind of, there's an interesting story about who they were. Uh, we're not quite sure where they came from, who they were. Uh, early church father Irenaeus said they were disciples of Nicholas, who was one of the seven uh, deacons in Acts chapter 7, who were uh, commissioned to be a deacon. And then says so that he kind of went off on his own and... Uh, I don't know what you would say in the South, got too big for his britches and then started uh, uh, undercutting the uh, apostles' authority. Uh, Clement from Rome says, well, that's actually not true. He didn't do that. It was his followers who started doing all of those things. However, the story played out, the Nicolaitans became a tag word for false apostles. So people who are coming into the early church and claiming to have apostolic authority. I was with him. I saw Jesus. I heard his voice. And he said, said this. You have heard that he said this, but I say to you, he really said or did this. So the Nicolaitans became people who were falsely claiming that apostolic authority. So you have the very beginning, you have false prophets uh, and then false apostles. And for the early church, one of the biggest problems was how could you know you have the trustworthy word of the Lord coming to you? 
And it's one of the reasons the Apostles' Creed developed. Because the Apostles' Creed became, they called it the rule of faith. It became like a ruler. So it was your ruler. So when someone came and presented a teaching from Jesus, you would then hold up the ruler and say, hmm, does it measure up? And if it doesn't, we're not going to accept it. And so the first, you have the, the first two, those questions, how can you discern the true teaching of Jesus? And then the third teaching is the teaching of Jezebel in verse 20 and 24. And so here's someone who's teaching and promoting this sexual laxity and people who are priding themselves on kind of their, their, their deep knowledge. We know the deep things. And Jesus plays on the words of the deep things of Satan. That's the deep things you know. Uh, your secret knowledge. And this is, of course, a reference to the original Jezebel, who was Ahab's wife in the time of the divided kingdom, who Elijah battled in First and Second Kings. And she came, her and Ahab's goal was to unite the northern and southern tribes. But instead of being united around the worship of Yahweh, they were going to be united around Baal worship. So she tried to murder the true prophets, raise up her own uh, prophets. And it's so fascinating how in both situations... In both Balaam and both Jezebel, the false teaching is connected to sexual immorality. Isn't that interesting? Why are those three almost always connected? You can actually see it. You can see clearly in Balaam, it's greed, sexual immorality. And I wonder, you know, somebody said the unholy trinity of America is sex, money, power. And I wonder if you can't see traces of the same things in these, these three false teachings. Sex, money, and power. And it's worth thinking about, all right, where are we tempted to be lured in the same direction today? What are the things that tempt us? You know, in some sense, the temptation for the teaching of Balaam, the Nicolaitans, and the Jezebels, here's an easier path. The path that Jesus is calling you to walk is going to be too costly. Here's an easier, more pleasurable path. You want a real path to self-fulfillment and to live your best life. This is the easiest way. This is an easier path. So let's actually think about the ugly thing because we need to feel the force. And all week I've wrestled with just the force of Jesus' words. These are strong words. Notice what he says to the church in Pergamum. He says that he's going to come in verse 16, and if you don't repent, I'm going to make war on them with the sword of my mouth. And then notice what he says to the church in Thyatira. I've given her, in verse 29, time to repent, but she refuses. So behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and heart. These are harsh words. You know, kind of all week I've looked at them and they've unnerved me. Does that sound like the Jesus meek and mild that you know? And whoever comes in the presence of the real Jesus at some point, he unnerves you. He says things that make you uncomfortable, that cause you to retreat. And if you've never heard him speak that way, maybe you've never heard the real Jesus. 
So what are we, well, I think we're in a particular danger to fall in the trap, especially of the church of Thyatira, because of a couple different things. One, we just live in an anti-doctrine age. You know, for a hundred years, like in the church, it said things like doctrine divides, love unites, which is almost the opposite of what Jesus says right here. So we live in an anti-doctrine age. So there is a central core of tr Christian teaching that can't be compromised. But also we're in more danger than we think because we're really not that particularly discerning. It's probably not a compliment to us that Americans are the most likely to be drawn into a Nigerian email scam. And it's the same with false doctrine. Um, if you care about doctrinal clarity, one way to depress yourself is to look each month at the top 20 uh, Christian book sales. So the top 20 bestsellers. So I looked at it last night. And so as we kind of navigate, some of the things we have to, we can eliminate the three. So we'll think, all right, is there a false doctrine here? Is there anything that could be dangerous? Maybe, maybe not. So for, we'll eliminate the three Amish love novels. <laughs> not sure why there's Amish love novels every month, but they're winners. So if you're a budding writer and need some material, maybe that's your track. So we'll take out the three Amish love novels. We'll take out the biographies of Randy Travis, Chip and Joanna Gaines, and Phil Robertson from Duck Dynasty. So we'll kind of, we'll, we'll move those. Those are also the top 20 Christian uh, sellers of the month. There were three books from known heretics who deny the Trinity, which is a little problematic. Uh, there's the three perennial cash cows that are just always there, the five love languages, the boundaries books, and the total money makeover. So those are just money machines, always. So we can kind of set those to the side. And then there's a whole cycle. Now, I haven't read any of these books. So they might be filled with Christian truth, and if one of these uh, moved you, uh, I'm not slamming them. Just the title can kind of get help you get at what's at the... The heart. What's at what's at the center? How are they being marketed? So of course the number one giant that's been on there for about eight months is girl wash your face. So here's perfect self-empowerment for the woman who needs to be energized and you can do it and you can take life. So wash your face. Then a couple of books down is own your every day so that you become a couple of books down the greatest you because couple of books down, you are next. And if you lose your way uh, on this path, we can get you on the road back to you so that you can become an, an exceptional you. So isn't it interesting that over half the books on the Christian book list have as the central title and character, you. I don't know if we should feel flattered or ashamed. You know, there's a conspicuous absence in all of these books of a certain title character that you would think would be central to Christian books. Not many books about Jesus. Not many books about God, but lots of books about how to, how we can live. And you wonder why? Why is that message so gripping to us in our community. If you want a real interesting website to check out, you can check out the Global Wellness Institute. And so, I mean, they might be housed in Lake Nona for all I know. So if you're new and work for them, um, you have a great website. <laughs> 
But the Global Wellness Institute wants to be a global leader in wellness education. And they say that the global wellness industry is a $3.7 trillion a year industry. And so uh, that's actually three times larger than the pharmaceutical industry. So some of you med students, you might be in the wrong business. And so you think, why? Why is there such a pull? And part of the sin of Balaam is to go after where the prophets are. And we can't be so silly to think we're not deceived to fall along the same path. But why? Maybe we're in more danger than we actually think. And then, of course, one of the real reasons we're also in danger is the third thing is notice what he critiques. He actually critiques something that our culture treasures. And it's worth pausing and saying, are we right? Or in what way could we possibly be wrong? Look at his verse in, in verse 19. I know your works, your love, your faith. Then in verse 20, I have this against you because you tolerate you tolerate, your tolerance. You're tolerant of something you should not be. And so we think about that because that can be a problematic concept because, of course, we're all for tolerance. We're all for legal tolerance, social tolerance. We want a free society where you're free to believe and practice uh, the things as you see fit. One of the central tenets of the Christian church, one of the things the church changed society is to bring in the idea uh, that you can be free to follow the, your conscience as it's captive by the word. A fascinating book came out a couple weeks ago from Robert Wilkin, who's a professor at University of Virginia, talking about the idea of religious freedom was an early church, in, uh, early church idea. So I think, yeah, that tolerance in some is a very good thing. And it wasn't Jesus himself who taught us you should love your enemies. In fact, the call to the Christian church is so much more than just being tolerant. We're actually called to love and pray for those who we're enemies with. But what's interesting here is there's some type of dark side. Tolerance just as it is, is not just a universal good. There are certain things that should be tolerated and certain things that shouldn't. And of course, we all know this. I mean, every person who's a parent understands that dynamic. You know, if... Uh, you know, if my kids came up to me this afternoon and the girls, you know, Sundays is kind of hard. Sunday's a long day for our family. And so if the girl says, Daddy, we're going to take a nap this afternoon, I'd say, Hallelujah. It's wonderful. And I say, But we're going to do it in the 417. You know, would I say, Oh, well, what, that's wonderful. Baby, you follow your heart. You just follow your heart. Whatever path you choose to blaze, I'll support you. Or if my son comes up and a miracle, miracle says, I want to take a bath. It's a hallelujah. He says, I want to, I'm going to take it and I'm going to bring this toaster to play with. No. There's actually things we won't tolerate. And we're not just going to give unqualified affirmation to everything they believe and every behavior they do. That's not love and that's not tolerance. And one of the challenges for us is we have to retrain our affection so we love what Jesus loves and we hate what he hates. Then, of course, if you think about it, we actually live in a pretty intolerant age. We're just pompously deceiving ourselves to think we're really that tolerant. And if you would like an illustration in that fact, I can, uh, to prove the point, I can just introduce you to Twitter. 
All you have to do is go on for five minutes and you will see this endless flood of judgment without mercy, opinions without knowledge, and all types of other rank intolerance. We're actually not as tolerant as we think we are. And what's so fascinating to think is, all right, have somehow, one of the things sin does is sin, one of Satan's primary strategies, it's almost like he'll go through and mix up the price tags on things. So things we think should be really valuable actually aren't that valuable. And things we don't think are very valuable are actually priceless. And he mixes the price tags up. And so it makes us wonder, has that happened in some way of our conception about what we will be tolerant of? So here's a couple of sociological experiments just to think about the world we're living in. Uh, so if you're like a college football fan, you know, one of the occupational hazards of co being a coach is you often use colorful language to motivate. And uh, it's not just being a coach, you know, there's terms like Richard Nixon was famous for his potty mouth and one of his uh, aides, his chief, the chief of staff, like the great stress of his life was not to allow the public to hear uh, Nixon's mouth because he knew even in the 60s, there's certain words that if they knew he said, he wouldn't be elected. And it's interesting, or there's certain words, like Bear Bryant could say certain things in the 60s that he can't say now, and there's certain things you can't say now that you could say then and vice versa. And it's interesting, what could you say as a politician that would get you, would mean you're unelectable now, versus what could you say then? What, what words are now off limits? I've been fascinated. We won't just pick on the top 20 Christian books. Have you noticed just top 20 books in general? Like uh, the number of titles with the F word in them. So here's a list. You have The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Blank, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Blank, Unblank Yourself, Blank Your Feelings, Blank Your Brain. I have no idea what that even means. <laughs> There's even a kid's book. Go the blank to sleep. So in 1960, you would not be elected if it was found out that that's a word you used in common conversation. But now we project it on the cover of best-selling books. Why? Do we tolerate the things we should? Fascinating. There's a sociologist who said uh, 60 years ago, as Americans, we were incredibly laissez-faire about our food, but had very strict morals about sex. Now we're incredibly strict about our food and incredibly laissez-faire about sex. And you wonder, is that actually a good thing? You know, there's probably mom's groups in this town who you could meet with, and if one of the moms says, I'm having an affair on my husband... She would get warm compassion, and they'd say, oh, honey, we're sorry. I mean, he's, he's such a jerk. He's mean to you. You follow your heart. We'll support you. But if she says, I fed my kids fruity pebbles this morning, <gasps> no. <laughs> you are blackballed. You are out of the mom's group. Fruity pebbles, you are out. They see remnants of a Happy Meal toy in that car, and you would not believe where I saw the Baileys pulling into. <laughs> and wonder, 
Are we right about those things? Are those, have our priorities somehow been shaken? And are they mixed up? One of the things Jesus critiques here is says, you actually, you think you're very loving, but you're not. You're tolerating things you shouldn't. We do not give unquestioned affirmation for every belief and behavior. There's certain things you have to believe, and there's a certain way I expect you to behave. Don't tolerate these things. Maybe we're in more danger than we think. But let's end and kind of think, all right, what's the promise? What's the hope? How do we get out? How can we navigate? And promise to both churches, to the church in Pergamum, he gives the promise of three things, the hidden manna, the white stone, and the new name. You know, they're living, the, the images, people who are living in the wilderness, and they're following after this teaching of Balaam, because as they're in the wilderness, they want to experience uh, some type of life worth living. And he says, no, 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 that's not where you're going to find life. The hidden manna is a refer, uh, reference to the manna that was put in the Ark of the Covenant to remind them of who provides for them, who provides your daily bread, who provides all you need. And he says, then you're going to get the white stone. And that's a beautiful image because it could mean one of two things. It could be the, one of the stones that was on the, the, the breastplate of the high priest who they'd write their name on the stone, the tribe's name, and he'd take it into God's presence. And it was a way of showing that the high priest bears your name on his heart. Or it could be a stone referencing uh, judgment. Because in the court, you know, like when our judge gives the verdict, we have a gavel. The gavel falls, the judge has spoken. In the ancient world, they'd often use two different stones. And if it was a black stone would fall, the verdict is you're guilty. The white stone would fall, the verdict is you're innocent. You've been pure. You've been cleared. So maybe it's a reference, you've been cleared, the white stone, and then you'll get a new name. That's the name of adoption. You've been brought in. You have a new family. And then look at this one, because this actually really disturbed me. And it was, I was laying in bed last night and still wrestling with it, because this seems so... Unjesus-like, but look what he says in verse 22. To all of them I will throw onto a sickbed, and to those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, and I will strike her children dead. And you're thinking, how do you make sense of that? What is that a reference to, or what's that an echo? What's, where is the hope of the gospel in that warning? And laying in bed last night, I started thinking, what? And just, all right. What's, what's happening here? And then it struck me, it dawned on me, I don't, I don't know. It's just a certain thing. Right, when else do we see striking the children dead? What other stories could control the way we think about this? And of course, the story is the Exodus to Pharaoh. God comes to Pharaoh and says, Israel's my beloved son. You're, you're crushing him. You let him go so he can come and worship me. And Pharaoh says, No, I will not. And God says, you try and kill my beloved son, I'm going to kill yours. And on the Passover, what the Passover is, is you dip the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost, and as the angel of judgment comes, if he sees the blood of the lamb, he passes you over. If not, that strikes the firstborn child. And Jesus has promised that the, the, the judgment is coming, but there is hope. There's escape. You can escape from it if you shelter under the blood of the Lamb. But that is your only hope. Don't turn to these other voices because you will not find life there. You will not find. The reason why the false teaching is so destructive is because it gives false hope and false promises that ultimately don't pay out in the end. If your hope is that you can send money to a Nigerian princess and eventually you'll get a windfall, you're banking on a false hope. And Jesus doesn't want you to bank on a false hope. And that's the why the call comes over, hear my word. 
Don't listen to the word of the uh, Balaam, of the Nicolaitans, or Jezebel. Don't hear their voice. You have to hear my voice because it's the only voice that can ultimately bring you to the place you want to be. It's the only voice that's going to really transform you and heal you and give you hope and stability. Really quick, I'm going to close with one story from a pastor. I know it was in a small country town, kind of like we were in Alabama, and had a, just a powerful story of this kind of man in his church who experienced transformation. He, uh, you know, every small town, you kind of have your big sinners that everybody kind of knows. And he lived in the trailer part right behind the church. So they started ministering to him, trying to, you know, bring him in. And he was kind of this notorious sinner. Uh, he, was, uh, he was functionally Ill- illiterate. He was kind of an older man who was physically disabled and was just angry. Uh, angry at foreigners, angry at people of other races, angry at his family. He was angry at his wife because he was dependent on her to really care for him. He was angry at his children because they weren't living the way he thought they should. And he slowly started coming under the power of the word and hearing another voice. And as the minister, he built a relationship, started talking to him. And the wife was, it's, it's a miracle. You have to come over. And I can't remember his name. to see John. And uh, he's, he's, I mean, it, it's still tough, but it's a lot easier than it was. He's, he's getting better. And one day, uh, the pastor was talking to him and, and, and um, talking about how his anger's kind of starting to go away and he's being changed. And the pastor said, well, how, you know, how is this happening? And he said something like this. He said, well, here's the thing. Whenever, uh, whenever things would happen to me, I used to hear this voice in my head. And, you know, if you have like a seminary trained pastor who's used to books and things and people start talking about voices in their head, we don't really know how to deal with that kind of thing. So he's like, oh, a, a voice in your head. <laughs> well, that's strange. W- what does it say? And, uh, you know, like so something would happen and my wife, my wife would do something and this voice from my head and say, you'll never amount to nothing. You're this worthless, illiterate fool. You're a failure of a husband, and then I get so mad, and then I just strike out. And, and then he, he didn't, the pastor, he didn't know what to do, so he tries to like psychoanalyze him and say, oh, well, is that the voice of your, are you repressing the voice of your father? And he was like, get out of here with that. No, it's just this voice, and I hear it, and it, it drives me, and slowly as I hear the gospel, another voice comes in. And they had been slowly working on Romans 8. He had been re- memorizing Romans 8. And he started talking about how when I started to hear the voice of guilt and saying, you're nothing, you're worthless, you'll never, uh, you'll never be anything. And I can say, you're right. I'll never be anything because I already am something. I already am loved. I already am a child. And when the voice of guilt would come in, he would say, well, there's no condemnation for me anymore. Because I'm in Christ Jesus. Or the voice of suffering would come in. He'd say, I consider the present suffering not worth being compared to the glory that I'm going to receive. Or voice of anxiety would come in. And I know in all these things, God is working for the good. So one voice would drown out of the other. It's why sound doctrine is so important to hear the true voice that can heal us and help us in our guilt, our suffering, our anxiety. The voice of accusation comes. You can say, if God be for us, who can be against us? When the voice of self pity, you come, you can say, but God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Or the tyrannical voice that comes that terrifies you, that all the things you love and care about in life, you can be separated from. 
You can hear a voice that says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything in all of creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So the reason why true doctrine matters is because true doctrine will drown out all of the false voices that are uh, competing for your mind. And so when you find yourself... Like two people in our church this past week found themselves. We're about to transition and spend some time praying for uh, the Edgars and the, and the Youngs. But Ryan went in on Tuesday to have, you know, routine surgery uh, in the kidney. And a little snip and they hadn't stopped uh, internal bleeding. And so it's been a difficult, very difficult week. And all of a sudden a young, healthy, beautiful family is confronted with the, the reality that life can be short. So we're going to pray for them. He's doing well. They're going to, uh, hopefully going to recover. But all of a sudden, you know, the fear, the voice of fear can come in. We're going to pray for Rob and Melinda Young. He, they were on a 15th anniversary wedding trip. And he got really sick and got this really bad infection. And it's really um, wreaking havoc. So he's in the hospital as well. So let's pray for both of them and pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the voice of truth that comes ringing out from your apostles' testimony. And you ask that you, we ask that you help us to hear it, to not let the other voices in our world drown it out, but to hear it and to heed it. And now we want to pray specifically for Ryan and Lisa and Rob and Melinda. We confess that you are the father of all mercies. You are the God of all comfort. You are our only hope in times of need. And so we ask that you would help them. We ask that you would see them. We ask that you would visit them. We ask that you would spread your comfort. We ask that you would comfort them with a sense of your goodness. Help them not to be afraid. Preserve them from the temptations that uh, fearful situations can bring. Preserve them from the temptations that anxiety-inducing uh, situations can bring. So help root their mind and guard it from doubts, fears, worries. We pray that you would give them patience under this affliction. We pray for the different children. We pray that you would protect their little hearts from fear and, and worry. And that you would um, anchor all of our hope in the risen Christ in his blessed word. We ask that in your good time you would restore them back to health. We ask that you would help all of us to number our days and live our lives for your glory. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name.